You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Thanks for listening. It's Friday, December the 3rd. It's a bright morning here in TW11, and the significance of that, apart from the fact that it's a nice bright morning, is that I'm only down the road from Sandown Park, where the feature race this weekend is the Tingle Creek Chase, and there hasn't been any overnight rain that had been anticipated, so the ground is good, good to soft on the chase course, good to soft, good in places on the hurdles course. That'll be one of the races that we will be discussing later in this program, together with the John Durkin chase at Punchestown and also the Many Clouds chase at Aintree. But first of all, we need to take stock of what happened not only in the High Court yesterday, but at the British Horse Racing Authority headquarters, continuing these two cases. First of all, the BHA's case against jockey Robbie Dunn and also the case in the High Court between Freddie Talitsky and fellow rider Graham Gibbons. Lydia was across both yesterday but was tuned fully via Zoom into BHA headquarters. Uh, This was a very, very busy day in the Robbie Dunn case. Lydia, where to start? Well, it started shortly after 10am and Louis Weston, who is the barrister for the BHA, formally rested his case just before four o'clock and we heard from 10 witnesses. Uh, We began with uh, a fence attendant at Stratford on the 8th of July 2020 and this person came forward as a result of the newspaper stories that appeared in the press this year. Um, We also heard from three valets, Graham Piper, his nephew Lewis Piper and also Mark Sinfield. We heard from former amateur jockey now nurse Hannah Welch. Clifford Baker, headman to Paul Nichols, was heard from and then we also heard from two current uh, British Horse Racing Authority uh, people, the investigator Nathan Taylor, albeit very briefly, John Burgess, who became the acting head of integrity on the resignation of Chris Watts, Chris Watts himself, and again at the end of the day, briefly, the trainer Neil King. The fence attendant, and it was stipulated by Brian Barker QC leading the inquiry that he must not be named, he has led most of the reports. Would you have written it up this way? I think so, because he was a very confident, very convincing witness. He testified to having witnessed Robbie Dunn um, spitting out abuse uh, towards Bryony Frost, something that he described as a real woe moment, a standout moment, beyond memorable. Um, Under cross-examination, he said he was 100% certain of the exact words. He was struck by the manner of the delivery. And he said it was a very personal, very aggressive statement. I'm not going to use the words that, uh, that he testified to. Um, and he also observed that at least two other jockeys uh, were closer to this incident than he was. And the barrister, Roderick Moore, representing Robbie Dunn, said that this was undisputed. Name those jockeys as Lorcan Murta and Adam Wedge. The witness suggested that there would have also have been other jockeys within earshot. And the witness said, it's quite, it's quite a significant point to me that they have not come forward um, as witnesses. Uh, Lydia, another key witness yesterday was Hannah Welsh. Who is Hannah Welsh? 
She is the former amateur rider who has since retrained as a nurse and uh, Roderick Moore uh, made much of when she had last ridden um, under rules. I think he, they agreed that it was around uh, November 2019. But Hannah Walsh made um, an allegation that she had had a altercation with uh, Mr Dunn, um, that she was verbally abused and reduced to tears by Robbie Dunn after a race at Chepstow in November 2018. He described this, she described this as, he stood very close in front of me and raised, with a raised voice and used swear words in a manner to intimidate. And she said that that made it different from other use of swear words that she might have heard in the sport um, because of the, the intimidation and the manner of it. She said, I don't appreciate being spoken to by being sworn at by anyone I don't think that's okay. And she said that that was a contributory factor to me giving up jump racing. And it was something that was not easily forgotten. She said she had a very clear recollection of events. She said it happened because in Mr. Dunn's opinion, he, she had cut him up on the top band. He, he, she repeated that he was shouting and swearing at me and standing very close. I was crying and he did not stop. Uh, Roderick Moore um, asserted that Mr. Dunn had said that he had spoken very calmly to her and that uh, she, he, ha he had not seen her in tears, to which uh, Hannah Welch replied, that's incredible. Uh, later on, um, as the last uh, piece of evidence uh, from this witness, um, she was asked by um, Alison uh, Royston, who is the uh, third panel member of the judicial panel, um, she was asked whether she felt able to report the incident um, Welch said, um, I thought it would not be regarded as serious, serious enough. I thought it would have retributions for me if I carried on riding. The other jockeys would not, not like the fact that I'd reported on an incident like this. Lydia, for the second consecutive day, and I raised this with Lee yesterday, there seemed to be much debate about what constitutes bullying what constitutes banter or bickering as as it was suggested yesterday yes bickering was the word that was frequently used then this uh line of argument was particularly focused in the cross-examination of graham and lewis piper the ballots they were working at Southern on the 3rd of september last year and there was much discussion between um the uh, the barristers and the, uh, the Pipers about what would um, constitute bickering and what would constitute bullying. They were asked for, for, for themselves to, to, to define that. Um, Graham Piper noted that uh, Bryony Frost was quieter than usual after the argument, but he said that uh, the incident was nothing out of the ordinary, that he'd have stepped in otherwise, and he likened the weighing room to a fun environment and more like a family. Lewis Piper said that the weighing room is a place where everyone gets on with everyone. We have good fun, a laugh, it's a good place to be. Um, and he um, said that he was uh, 10 to 15 yards away from the, the incident. Um, and he recalled that Riley Frost was still hanging about in the male um, weighing room. And he suggested that if she was distressed, she would surely have gone into her own room and hid away. Um, this, of course, contrasts with Bryony Frost's own testimony on Wednesday, that's, and she said that this incident happened about 10 minutes before the race. The five-minute call to the jockeys would have already come, and she would have been going out to ride at any moment. So from her perspective, she would be suggesting that, that she couldn't go away because she was about to be going out to ride. Um, Louis Weston, who's the BHA's barrister, cross-examined Lewis Park. Park, uh, Lewis Piper and asked him uh, what drew his attention to 
Robbie Dunn and Bryony Frost because Lewis was stressing that he, you know, he was very busy doing other things. And the point I, I felt that Louis, Louis Weston was trying to make was that um, if Lewis Piper was preoccupied with uh, doing his work, you know, doing his day job, as all the ballots suggested that that's what they were doing, that would be their major preoccupation. Of course, it would be, it's their job. Um, but, but Louis Weston was, was pointing out, if you were that far away, what was it that drew your attention to the incident? Okay, now we can't um, leave this without talking about Chris Watts, who is the former um, head of integrity at the BHA, who doesn't work there anymore. And so much has rested on whether his departure from the authority is going to be of any kind of significance in this case. Uh, Did yesterday tell us anything much? It told us quite a lot. Let's start with his departure because um, Roderick Moore tackled this uh, right towards the end of Chris Watts's um, evidence. Uh, Roderick Moore said, um, you're no longer employed by the BHA. We're told that you resigned. Uh, Chris Watts confirmed that said he said yes in September. Roderick Moore said, was the reason for your resignation anything to do with your conduct connected with this investigation? There was a long pause and then Chris Watts said no. Now I should stress when I say that it was, there was a long pause, there were some connectivity issues at Zoom so that may, uh, with the Zoom testimony, so that may or may not be significant. Roderick Moore said, uh, was the reason uh, for your resignation anything to do with the data breach or the leak? And Chris Watts said no. Absolutely not. Earlier on in that cross-examination, Roderick Moore had asked him whether uh, he could explain how information um, about the case had reached the Sunday Times and the Mail on Sunday in particular. And Chris Watts said that he, he could not account for that. So what did the cross-examination of, of Chris Watts centre on, Lydia? Well, I think that, that Roderick Moore was trying to um, draw out some inconsistencies or inadequacies Um, of the investigation. Um, Chris Watts uh, was uh, asked about um, suggestions that uh, Jimmy Frost had sought revisions to his daughter's formal statements to the BHA. Chris Watts insisted that he had always said at all times to those parties advising uh, Bryony Frost, there was more than just Jimmy Frost, there were a couple of other advisors as well, um, that the testimony absolutely always 100% had to be hers and hers only. we also heard from um, uh, a couple of riders um, who had been interviewed by, uh, we heard Roderick Moore refer to the testimony of a couple of riders who had been interviewed by Chris Watts last December, namely Tom Scudamore and Gavin Sheehan, both of whom um, said that they felt that the account that Chris Watts had, had written down of their testimony was either not fully what they said or um, had got some omissions in it. They had been re-interviewed this September after obviously a, a lot of water had, had gone under the bridge. And uh, the, the expectation is that um, Roderick Moore will be concentrating on what these riders have to say when he starts presenting his case for the defence next week. It was um, partly to do with the manner in general of Bryony Frost riding and uh, Gavin Sheehan and Tom Scudable had comments to make about, about that in particular, which they felt had been omitted from, from Chris Watts's evidence. Um, there was also a, an instance whereby um, Roderick Moore seemed to be suggesting that there was a, a line of inquiry that Chris Watts um, hadn't fully followed up, um, and he um, had to concede that that was a fair point. And Lydia, no case, however serious it is, is immune, it seems, to the bizarre. 
Roderick Moore uh, referred to statements from two witnesses, which we anticipate he will be calling for the defence next week. The trainer, Laura Young, and her friend and employee, uh, Jay Dalton. And this rather, I mean, there's so many little details in this case, which I'm sure will be poured over in greater detail uh, later on. But uh, this centres around an Airbnb, a double-decker bus that Jimmy Frost and his wife have on their uh, premises and in a, in a conversation by, by phone that uh, Chris Watts was having with trainer Laura Young uh, who was sitting in line waiting for a car wash with Jay Dalton in the passenger seat um, she was saying that she wanted somewhere unusual to say to stay and Chris Watts um, recommended Jimmy Frost or suggested have you have you heard of Jimmy Frost place and this uh, ha- uh, Roderick Moore con- contended was evidence that Chris Watts and Jimmy Frost were friends, and this is a thread that has been running through the case um, that they were that that they were that, that that Jimmy Frost and Chris Watts were good friends, and that this was the impression that Laura Young and Jay Dalton had got from that particular conversation. Uh, Chris Watts, it must be said, vigorously denied this. He said it was absolutely ludicrous. Um, He asked um, to be provided with the dates that he had supposedly stayed at Jimmy Frost Airbnb. And he stressed that 100% there was only one occasion on which he met Jimmy Frost, and that was when he took the evidence. And again, he asked Roderick Moore to supply the dates whereby it had been suggested that he had stayed at Jimmy Frost's Airbnb. Um, at the end of uh, Chris Watts's uh, evidence, Louis West of the BHA did point out that given that Chris Watts is no longer an employee of the BHA, they had no power of impulsion to require uh, Chris Watts to attend and give evidence, and he just wanted that to be noted. Lydia, there was quite an interesting um, section of Chris Watts's cross-examination when the the subject of Richard Johnson the former multiple champion jockey came up what what was that this derives from an email that Chris Watts sent to Bryony Frost on the 28th of September um, talking about potential witnesses and asked uh, there was a list of names and asking who uh, she would want him to approach or might want him to approach and who um would he, he wouldn't be wanting to approach some of the names were highlighted in red Roderick Moore wanted to know why are you asking her to tell you people she didn't want to be interviewed Chris Watts made the point that this was at the time when Bryony Frost um hadn't hadn't stated whether she wanted to be formally um interviewed uh, Roderick Moore um disputed that um and so the this then boiled down to centering on on Richard Johnson um, Richard Johnson um, was never approached, according to uh, Roderick Moore. Chris Watts said that there had been a conversation between him and Richard Johnson at Cheltenham in November 2020, but he conceded that he didn't have a note about that. Um, uh, Roderick Moore wanted to know why why that would be, and Chris Watts said, I can't provide an explanation. So um, that was the second time during the course of this evidence this, that Chris Watts was, was were having to concede to Roderick Moore that something um, should have been done uh, that wasn't done, or at least that there wasn't an adequate explanation for not doing it. Well, the hearing continues on Tuesday uh, from 10 o'clock. Now, at the High Court yesterday, evidence was heard in the case involving Graham Gibbons and Freddie Talitsky, and Jim McGrath, formerly of Channel 4 and Timeform, took to the stand for a significant portion of the day. Yes, and obviously he's currently uh, a pundit on Sky Sports Racing as well. And uh, he contended that the incidents could have been easily avoided 
He also said it was dangerous riding that caused the incidents and the stewards should have come to that conclusion. Now, uh, Patrick Lawrence, who's the QC defending Graham Gibbons, said that that was without foundation. But Jim McGrath focused on what he said was a discernible movement by Gibbons, changing his grip on the reins and resulting in his mount moving towards the inside rail, which in Jim McGrath's view, led to F Freddie Talicki's mount running out of racing room shortly afterwards. Uh, Patrick Lawrence disputed this. He said there was no trace of any significant lateral movements of that horse towards the rail before the collision. He then went on to question um, Jim McGrath's expertise um, and, say, and said, uh, you know, what, what basically, why, why was he able to, to give um, these... Uh, views. He said that uh, he wasn't qualified to make the claim that Graham Gibbons had been guilty of dangerous riding. He asked, what is it in your life that entitles you to give expert evidence to this court as to whether his riding was far below that of a competent and careful rider? Um, Jim McGraw referred to his experience as a race reader and a commentator and his knowledge of the rules. Lawrence insisted that didn't amount to sufficient expertise. Um, and in a, in a exchange that went on for some time, time, an hour, um, according to reports, and it has been described as quite a testy exchange. Uh, this, it is said, it is reported, irritated Jim McGraw, who called um, attention to solicitor Rory McNeese, who was sitting behind uh, Patrick Lawrence and alongside Graham Gibbons. And this is a quote, uh, I'm quoting Chris Cook's article in the Racing Post. Um, Jim McGrath said, Mr. McNeese works regularly for the PJA. The PJA thought I was sufficiently experienced to ask me to help in the case of a jockey, Richie McGrath. They, they clearly thought I had some ex experience and knowledge that was worth presenting to a tribunal. Off the back of that, they asked me to be involved in two more cases. I declined. I'm not a gun for hire. Like Ryan Moore said yesterday to me, this is tiresome and unpleasant. I don't take any pleasure in being here saying these things. Yes, I do think I can give a reasonable opinion to the court. Hmm. Charlie Lane, Lydia, is the other significant figure in this case yesterday. Yes, he is the defence's expert witness, Charlie Lane, who's a current stewards panel chair of 30 years experience. And um, stewards panel chair, that's uh, one of the volunteer stewards who chair inquiries, um, the inquiry panel at race courses. Now, he was cross-examined by Edward Fawkes, who was the QC representing Freddie Talitsky. Um, and uh, Mr. Fawkes uh, particularly zeroed in on three races mentioned in Charlie Lane's report, um, one of which resulted in a ban for Ryan Moore, um, who was an expert witness for Taliki um, this week. And uh, Charlie Lane said that those races had been suggested to him by Rory McNeese as other examples of careless riding. And Edward Fawkes made the point that uh, Mr Lane's first duty was to the, to the court. He disputed whether examples cherry-picked uh, by uh, Mr McNeese, uh, including Ryan Moore's only suspension for careless riding among the three races chosen, was, was really suitable. And, and had he really um, thought about that? Did he, did he think it was only a coincidence that that race had been chosen? Um, and Lane replied, I think it may well not have been, but I don't know. I didn't ask, I'm, I'm afraid. Um, it then moved on to um, the uh, incident, the particular incident at Kempton. Um, Lane explained that um, he knew the stewards who were officiating at Kempton that day. Uh, he personally 
um, still officiated there uh, occasionally, and he didn't think that these facts were an obstacle to him giving um, a fair appraisal. He said that in his view, he agreed with the uh, stewards of the day's conclusion that uh, the the incident had been caused by accidental interference. Um, Mr Fawkes QC said, shouldn't the um, Sewers Inquiry have been adjourned because the four horses involved, the four jockeys involved in the incident who had fallen or been unseated and, uh, and brought down were not available to give the evidence? Um, Charlie Lane said that he felt that the um, that the uh, video evidence was um, sufficient. Um, and I, that's where the, 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 the case concluded for the day um, with, and it concludes today with closing arguments on both sides and an immediate verdict is not expected. But I think there's a couple of things that are going to be coming out of this from the long term. I mean, one is the, it is the point about the adjournment of that steward's inquiry. You know, that, that, is, that is not, um, I don't think the, the BHA would reflect that that was procedurally correct. Um, and uh, also, uh, Charlie Lane, in his evidence, agreed with uh, Mr. Fawkes QC um, that jockeys may not be open and frank in inquiries. And this line of uh, questioning obviously arose from the comments by Pat Cosgrave on Tuesday that there was a jockey's code of conduct not to get involved or say too much. So thematically, from this very sad case, um, those are the two things I think that the British Horse Racing Authority and the sport will be focusing upon. Okay, I do appreciate it for everybody. Um, it's, it's been interesting, but a tough listen this week at, at times. I'm incredibly grateful to, to Lydia and to Lee the last couple of days for trying to digest an enormous, or help us to digest an enormous amount of, of quite weighty stuff. And it's been quite easy to forget that, that we are actually here to talk about uh, horse racing, Lydia, and there's a lot of go- uh, good horse racing this weekend. Like a lot of good horse racing on this weekend. It's absolutely storming this weekend. Should we start with the Tingle Creek at Sandown, yeah. shall we? De- definitely, because even minor Shishkin, it's still a belter, and re- isn't doesn't it really revolve around the Shakan Porsoir that you've seen a couple of times, absolutely smashing horses up in Ireland, bowling up again. I'm a massive, massive fan of Shakan Porsoir, and I'm expecting him. Even though this is his seasonal debut, so the, all four horses that he'll be facing are potentially, uh, well, are definitely more match fit than him um, and potentially more race fit than him. Uh, even so, I'm expecting him to be really, really impressive. I, I think right-handed suits him. I think he's a, a really um, good good jumper. And a, in this circumstances, I think a powerful enough stare. I, I am less bothered by the rising final furlong here than I am about the tight course, the old course of the, the scene of the Queen Mother Champion Chase at Cheltenham, where he was disappointing when beaten in March. Um, on that occasion, Nubinegra finished in front of him. Nubinegra was thumped by, hi- uh, by him at Punchestown. Um, Nubinegra has since come out and been pretty impressive in the Schler Chase. So I'm expecting Shaka Baswa to beat Nubinegra in these circumstances in the Tingle Creek. I'm not expecting him to finish in front of Nubinegra in the Champion Chase. Mm, that's interesting. Um, let's talk a little about the many clouds chase at Aintree. That takes place tomorrow because it's thrown up perhaps a slightly more interesting field than people would have imagined. And again, Newby Negra's connections here represented by Protectorat, who'll be ridden by Bridget Andrews against the grand old native river at 11. 
Oh, superb native river. Um, a lot of rain has fallen in the north. It is soft ground that will suit him. He can get into a tremendous rhythm. Um, he's still absolutely no back number at um, the age of 11. I think um, we saw that he's not effective uh, at the Cheltenham Gold Cup level of things, but this would be uh, a scenario in which he would be feared. Uh, Protectorat, I thought, ran superbly uh, when um, second in the uh, Gold Cup, the Paddy Power Gold Cup at Cheltenham. Um, he obviously has got a, a grade one victory here at Aintree to his name. So it's going to be interesting whether he can um, cope with open grade one company. This is going to be the first proper test of that and he did make a significant error um, in his seasonal debut which contributed to him being further back than would have been ideal um, against against the winner on that occasion so it's going to be fascinating this yeah and you don't want to turn off your tv set on sunday either because you've got the fitzdares peterborough chase at huntingdon uh, also of course the most important race of the day the fitzdares loves the nick luck daily handicap at 227 <laughs> at huntingdon uh, and, uh, and and some suits serious racing at Punchestown, the John Dirk and, and, and the Hilly Way. Who are going to be the star acts, do you think? Well, in the Hilly Way, it's going to be Enigamen, uh, clearly, who was um, the star um, novice over shorter distances um, in Ireland last season, didn't make it to the Cheltenham Festival, was incredibly impressive after that. He has been sent to the Hilly Way by his trainer, uh, Willie Mullins, which seems like a suitable opening position for a novice coming into open company. So it'll be exciting to see him. And the John Durkin is just ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it is ridiculous. And this is just how ridiculous it is. Alaho, Patrick Mullins, Asterion Falange, Brian Cooper, Envoy Allen, Rachel Blackmore, Fakir Dudery, Mark Walsh. Bryony Frost is going to get the ride on Franco de Port for Willie Mullins, very interestingly. What a weekend it could be for her. She's got Grenatine, of course, in the Tingle Creek as well. Janadil Jody McCarvey, Kenboy Danny Mullins, Melon Brian Hayes, Manella Times, and Tornado Flyer. Well, 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 what a race for the John Durkin. I mean, that sells itself. I mean, there is another talking point. Lydia Album Photo's not going to run. So he is uh, going to have a race course gallop instead and head to his usual target at Tremor on New Year's Day. And remember, the conclusion that Willie Mullins came to at the end of last season was that that horse um, lacked um, fitness going into the Gold Cup. And he now, having stated that he was wanting to campaign the horse more regularly this season, uh, I think he would say that the ground has thwarted him in that particular ambition. Unless, of course, we see the horse in the Irish Gold Cup. I mean, that could could be um, a difference. But having... Hope to run him at Furley's and pull him out because of the ground and hope to run him here again because of the ground, Willie Mullen says, that uh, the, uh, the horse isn't, isn't going to be ready. Uh, that is disappointing. I mean, clearly it is disappointing. It's just as disappointing not to see the, the Gold Cup winner as it would be not to see um, Champ in the, in the many clouds for the reasons that Nicky Henderson has explained or um, Shishkin Ditto in the Tingle Creek. Lydia, this is a this is a ridiculously good race. I mean, we people we're banging on about good horses not taking each other on. There's a load of good horses taking each other on here. They really are, and uh, Willie Mullins is stacked. We'll come back to that in, in a moment. But Edward Allen is there, um, and he dotted up on his seasonal debut against much lesser opposition. This is a proper test, and so far, when he's had proper tests, he has come up short. Now there have been reasons for that. The the two runs at the back end of, of, of last season, but you know, this is would be a proper test. 
for him. Bakadidaris, who's already begun this season with a, a proper grade one type performance against lesser horses. He is race fit and heading here and um, at a distance that very much suits him. So he's going to be a major player for Joseph O'Brien. And then Willie Mullins has got a whole host of horses representing him. Alaho making his seasonal debut. The horse absolutely pulverised the field in the Ryanair under uh, uh, Rachel Blackmore. And then also the likes of maybe Janadil, Kemboy, Mellon, Tornado Flyer. These Asterium Falange, these are all going to be interesting horses that are um, up against um, the uh, a top flight of horses. I mean, we, we know that Ireland has got this collection of really top flight horses, and this is, is an incredible clash. Well, it's Friday, which means it's time for the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings. And with the Japan Cup just in the rearview mirror, we thought we would show you exactly the strength of Japanese racing and give it some global context, having a look at not only the horses, but the size, the jockeys, the trainers. So here are the top 10 horses in Japan at present on the TRC rankings. At 10 is Deep Bond, ranked 71 overall, a triple grade two winner this season and second in the tenor show, the pre four winner, of course on Arc Trials Day. At nine is Authority, the Japan Cup runner-up rated 64. At eight is Danon Kingley, ranked 63, the winner of the grade one Yasuda Kinnan. At seven is the Philly Resistencia. She's ranked 58, and she was second in the Sprinter Stakes, grade one, and she was a very exciting two-year-old in her former career. At six, you'll know this one well, Loves Only You, the Philly who won the Philly and Mayor Turf at the Breeders' Cup, and also the Queen Elizabeth II at Shatin in Hong Kong. She's ranked 47 overall. Ranked 38 overall and five in Japan is the very exciting three-year-old by Kingman Schnellmeister, who was good enough to finish second to Gran Allegria in the mile championships and won the grade one NHK mile. One to look out for next year. Four is Chronogenesis, our old friend, the mayor. She's ranked 25 overall, having been much higher in her pomp, but she still was good enough to win the Japanese equivalent of the King George, the Takarazuka Kinnan, in June. At three is the Colt Euphoria, who is still on the march, ranked 13 overall, beat Contrail and Gran Allegria. That's quite an achievement in the Tenno Show Autumn. At two, formerly the TRC number one ranked horse in the world, finishes his career at seven. The Triple Crown winner, Contrail, up 18 for that very impressive performance in the Japan Cup. And retiring at number one in Japan and three overall is the redoubtable mayor, Gran Allegria, whose form got another recent boost and she won her second mile championships as a glorious send-off. So the one and two, three and seven in the world, Gran Allegria and Contrail, they're retired to the breeding sheds uh, in a, a blaze of glory. James Willoughby is with me. Becoming more familiar with horses in Japan has been one of the great pleasures of this exercise, James. Yeah, Nick, and you're not alone there either. Uh, they definitely get more, a lot more feedback from people taking an interest in Japanese racing and logging onto the Japan Racing website on a Sunday morning to watch videos of their massive races over there. And really, if you are a global racing fan, well, you've just got to do that, haven't you? Just listening to you reel off the credentials and the list of those Japanese horses. Well, it's mouthwatering stuff if you're an international racing fan. And the two horses that you mentioned has been great prospects for the future. Euphoria and Schnellmeister, the, the two three-year-olds, goodness me. We're going to be hearing a lot more of those two massively talented animals in 2022. 
Now, as I said on my TV show last week, and I credited not only you, but um, your, yeah. your, your brilliant other half, Janet Hickman, with spotting yeah. a, bit of, a bit of pedigree arcana that will tell you why mm. Japan is now the, uh, becoming at the cutting edge of global pedigrees. Yeah, that, that's right. And there's a link between the pedigrees of Contrail and essential quality in that the third dam of Contrail is the second dam of the brilliant essential quality. We didn't see at his best in the Breeders' Cup Classic, but of course, he put a sparkling three-year-old career together and being the champion two-year-old the year before. And this, I think, just nicely illustrates how Japanese breeding operations have been able to fuse the best of American dirt pedigrees with European grass pedigrees and done so very carefully and selectively over the years. This is no uh, overnight sensation by any means. We've been talking about this now for a number of years, but it's really interesting to pour over. And let me take you back to the Breeders' Cup, uh, Nick, and um, the distaff in particular. That shock win there, well, I reckon I had a look the other day. I reckon there are nine or ten fillies potentially better than the winner of the distaff, and yet she won it pretty well, didn't she? She won it incredibly well. Um, and yeah. she's a she's a a very, very tough mare who can take that international campaigning. And I think on that on that note, we ought to tip our hats to to the trainer. What can you tell me about him and where he sits in the pantheon of trainers overall? Well, we're talking now about Yoshito Yahagi. Now, Japanese trainers and to a lesser extent jockeys are a little limited in that they only have uh, a select number of horses in their in their barns compared to the massive 300 or 400 horse operations that are more common in America and Europe. But this man, Yoshito Yahagi, has compiled a quite remarkable record of late. And that's catapulted him into the world's top uh, 20 years now. Of course, he sent out Contrail to win the Japan Cup. And before that, um, perhaps incidentally, a, a grade three winner as well. But Love's Only You, King Hermes, who won a big race in Japan, and then March Lorraine, who we've just been talking about, the Breeders' Cup Distaff winner. So he had a double there with his uh, not by, now, by now notable uh, purple hat. Uh, and we're going to see perhaps quite, <laughs> quite a, a bit more of that particular uh, headpiece um, in the next few years, because I think he's got some fairly uh, bold plans as far as the Breeders' Cup is concerned. Yeah, I mean, somebody said, just imagine when they start sending their good ones over, and and yeah, many a true word. That's spoken. right. Well, I mean, you know, that's right. It, it, it exactly does does count as as a comment like that. And uh, you know, Yahagi's portfolio of success isn't you know just based on one or two shock wins, but it's quite deep as well in Japan and. Um, you know, he's, he's got this sort of rather mercurial sort of outlook and appearance. He seems highly enthusiastic, which is sort of something we, we see in a, in a few um, Japanese horsemen. Because, you know, there's a tremendous vibe around Japanese racing in Japan. It's, it's, there's such great enthusiasm for the sport. And uh, they so love to see their horses do, do well over, overseas. But that kind of masks a steely uh, mind, I fancy. Uh, and certainly when you look at his results, Yagi, you can see that he's a target trainer par excellence. Well, we saw it, didn't we, in the way that Contrail was 
um, campaigned back to peaking at the Japan Cup, having been given a quiet enough ride the previous time, and they brought him to the peak. They, they knew his weight was right, and he went out in an absolute blaze of glory, up 18, and finishes seventh in the world, which doesn't oversell him overall, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and it's really because that his four-year-old season has been abbreviated, and he's got to rank lower in our classification, the way we do things. He has to rank lower than Gran Alegria. And the reason for that is Gran Allegria, who is at world number three, has got deeper form recently. She's got two grade ones on her CV. She's got a number of other good efforts. And Contrail's season, uh, we, he had that excellent comeback second in the Tenno show, Autumn. Before that, a slightly disappointing run. And then just this Japan Cup. So he's formed not quite as deep. But as a three-year-old, it was completely the opposite because he won the Triple Crown in Japan in a style that matched the substance of those performances. And it's really interesting now, you know, the autumn, and you and I have talked um, on this podcast now about how the different strands of form around the world are all coming together. We were, we were speculating for the autumn. Essential quality didn't quite get it done, but others have stepped up. In America, life is good. And in Australia, very elegant in nature strip. And then we've got that kind of ballast of top European stars there as well. St. Mark's Basilica, um, Palace Pier and the up-and-coming Baid, all of these topped by Nick's go. He's brilliant, brilliant Breeders' Cup win. It actually turned out to be one hell of a campaign this did internationally. And Contrail, he put really the, 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 the ribbon on it uh, with a, a spectacularly impressive success, I thought. Held up well off a slow pace at Tokyo and slicing down the outside to uncomfortably by two lengths. His rider able to snatch back the reins crossing the line. That was what we've been saying and we've been rating him as having the capability to do at TRC Global Rankings for a number of months, especially during his three-year-old season. And it was great to see him round off his campaign. And talking finally of Far Eastern racing, well, last week we mentioned that he's back, Golden 60. Let's not forget, forget him, the Hong Kong star. 12 group race wins or what we consider group race wins already on his CV. And all in all, Nick, I'm trying to say this segment in which we talk about international flat racing, it's come to a spectacular fruition in 2021. And I and many others who love this domain cannot wait to see these horses back again in competition when 2022 rolls around. That, that, that would normally be a rousing climax to this segment, James. But just one more thing. Uh, so I want to As ask Columbo you. Used to say, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to ask you yeah. about um, riders in Japan, and particularly the effect and impact of Christophe Lemaire, um, French French born, based in France for a long time, renowned international rider, has done really well in Japan. He, w- <laughs> I asked him last weekend whether Contrail was a better horse now, having beaten him in this year's Japan Cup, than he was last year when he beat Contrail on Almondai, and he's like, absolutely not. Almondai was just a fantastic filly, and of course, he is the regular uh, pilot of Gran Allegria as well. Uh, how does he stack up yeah. against the uh, against the uh, locally born and, and locally raised riders? Well, he's the number one, and he has been for a, a number of years. Before him, it was the Italian Mirko de Muro who was the top spot. And it's significant, the identity of these two Europeans. Domestic riders in Japan are gradually getting better, I think. They're gradually getting more experience. And, and the reason they're getting better is that Japanese racing plays out in a particular way, the way the races are run, and adapting to the demands 
of races like the Prix de Triomphe has proved rather difficult historically for one or two Japanese jockeys just because it can be such a different test and a different uh, setting and the ground conditions being soft as well and the, the whole tempo of the race is different. But riders like Yuga Kawada, Yuichi Fukunaga is, are increasingly, oh and Keita Tosaki, I must mention him, he's really good, are increasingly um, really sort of boosting the reputation of domestic Japanese riders. And both of those three gentlemen I mentioned are now in the world's top 40. But Le Maire heads them, currently number six, but a former world number one. And while we're on the subject, the current world number one is a rider I've long wanted to see. Not that I've got any impact in it, but I've long wanted to see at the top. And that's, of course, the Kiwi, James McDonald, of course, he's Australian-based. At the moment, McDonald, Dottori, Rosario, Buick. Well, if you don't like watching those four gentlemen ride racehorses, you really don't like racing itself. All right. Thanks to James uh, and to everyone involved in today's show, uh, particularly Lydia, who has a tip for you. I'm going to go with um, Lee's sentimental feeling, um, and I'm doing it partly out of sentiment, but more out of out of logic. In that, I think he's the, the soundest jumper in the field, and the horses that are closest to him in ability do have a question to answer over that. So I'm going to go for Native River in the Many Clouds on Saturday, Aintree's 205. Uh, Lydia, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. We will see you again on Monday. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.